Rome is the eternal city, and it feels that way when trying to see it as a tourist on a hot and crowded peak season day. But the greatest sights of Roman antiquity line up in a wonderful stroll. The Colosseum, the Forum, the Capitoline Hill, the Pantheon. And Rome-based tour guide Francesca Caruso joins us now to better understand what I call the Caesar Shuffle. Thanks for joining us, Francesca. Thank you for having me, Rick. Ciao. Ciao. Now, it's a challenge to distill this complicated story into a, a short interview, but let's try. I'd like to walk with you through the Caesar Shuffle with a few practical tips and insights to properly appreciate, really, some of the greatest sights in Western civilization. And before we start, what's the proper mindset we should get into, the right frame of mind so we can get the most out of this stroll? So I would say to sort of do it as a parallel experience, to come to it with one's contemporary sensitivity, travelers who come from uh, a culture that has skyscrapers, who are used to tall, grandiose buildings, but also try to imagine the eyes and the sensitivity of people who walked the streets of Rome 2,000 years ago, who are not used to all that grandeur. So the effect, what's it all about? What does it mean? What's it trying to say? Put us in the context of people who don't have cars and skyscrapers and elevators and TVs and obviously all that. So we're going to start at the Colosseum. Why is it named the Colosseum, and, and what do we see? Well, it was named the Colosseum um, after an object that doesn't exist anymore. Right right outside the Colosseum, there used to be a colossal statue of the Emperor Nero, apparently made of bronze. And uh, after he died, his memory was damned. They turned it into a statue of a sun god, and then it was melted down over time. But the size of the statue was later applied to the size of the uh, building. Now, I, I've, I understand the Colosseum has, what, 50,000 numbered seats, and they're all into efficiency, right? So you could fill it and empty it as quickly and efficiently as we do our super stadiums. Yeah, they had um, 80 entrances, 76 of them numbered, 50,000, 60,000 people maybe could get out of there in around 13 minutes, so incredibly huh. efficient. Had you and I been in neighboring sections, we would never meet on entering and on leaving. Uh-huh. That's why those arches are called vomitorium, because at the end of the day, it was like a stomach evacuating. Across the street, there's this amazing arch, the Arch of Constantine. And when I look at that, I think propaganda. And you're right. The arch is completely encrusted with art. It used to be very colorful, too, and it just celebrates the emperor and the things that he achieved. And that's a monument, and that's what monument means. It means memory. So that arch has no other function than standing for this emperor and his achievements and carrying his name and his memory through the ages. So absolutely propaganda. And the emperors were living pretty crazy and wild lives and uh, kind of offensive if there's people that are struggling. They had to have effective propaganda just to maintain their, their situation. I mean, once you have power over such a gigantic territory from Britain to the uh, Middle East, the big question is, how do you keep it? And how do you keep it for a very long time? You keep it also by making it obvious and tangible through monuments and by giving people the impression that they were part of all of that. And that's also the whole bread and circuses thing. Subsidize the bread, give them circuses, keep the people happy. Yes, it's an identity builder. Think, oh, this is what it means to be a Roman. Uh, It's good to be part of this. Just across next, you look up and there's a hill called Palatine Hill. Why is it called Palatine Hill? Well, it's where the city was founded. It was named after a goddess that was worshipped there, and it's where it started. That's where Rommel is supposed to have founded it, and then later, that's uh, during the Republican period, it became the sort of Beverly Hills of ancient Rome, and that's eventually where the emperors had their palace. Palace in English, Palazzo Palais, all these words come Palatine, from... Palatine, palace. Absolutely, oh, and, yeah. And uh, on the far side of the Palatine Hill, you can sit there in your palace, I suppose, on a balcony with uh, all, of, all of your wonderful... Uh, 
trappings, and you've got this amazing Circus Maximus in front of you. The Circus Maximus was, uh, that was a place that the, the ancient Romans really loved. They enjoyed the chariot races there even more than they did the gladiator games, and those races were actually quite violent and quite fast. They had accidents all the time. They said that being a charioteer at the Circus Maximus was as dangerous as being a gladiator at the Colosseum, and that's the part that the Romans enjoyed the most. And how many people could pack the Circus Maximus? Really around 250,000, which I think makes it comparable to the largest structure for sports today, which is a place in Indianapolis where they have the Indy 500. So. Oh, is that something? And that's 2,000 years ago. And you can still see it today pretty clearly, the whole outline of that. You can, exactly. What is you see is the outline. Do, do you have gatherings there? I saw a Bruce Springsteen concert there. <laughs> One of the highlights of my life. There you go. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Chariot race course 2,000 years later, Bruce Springsteen. Yep. Now, uh, I have this simplistic idea about when you have the seven hills of Rome, there was a common ground. And originally, 700 years before Christ or whatever, the people up on these hills would come down and trade and get together and communicate in the common grounds. And that is what we have today, the forum. Is there anything to that? Yes, it's very true that they would come down from the hills initially to bring their cattle to graze and to bury the dead. And then little by little, they start exchanging goods and information. That's why the founding of Rome is about the coming together of the shepherds living on the different hills. And that's a forum. And then right from day one, I think expansion was the business of state. They got this together. They started expanding. And I love to sort of get my brain around Rome. Started roughly 500 B.C. It grows for 500 years peaks for 200 years, falls for 300 years. If you were to characterize the first half of Rome from 500 B.C. to the time of Christ and the last half of Rome from the time of Christ until it fell in 476 A.D., what were the two forms of government? Well, at first you have the Republic, and in the Republic you have the senators who are the representatives of the great aristocratic land-owning families. Every year there's the election of two consuls that elect two prime ministers. And instead, in the in the empire, is basically the rule of one. I mean, the Senate never goes away, but it becomes mainly just so a symbol. So it's a little bit idealistic, a little uh, ruled by rich people in a little bit of representative way for 500 years. But it grows so big that the word Rome no longer means the city, but it actually means the entire civilized world. Everything was either Roman or barbarian, speaking something other than Greek or Latin. And then they realized it's just too unwieldy. We can't have this, you know, idealistic democracy kind of stuff. We need to have an iron-fisted dictatorship. Julius Caesar names a month after himself, July, and establishes that ironclad uh, rule, and that rides Rome through the Pax Romana, 200 years of stability, and then the long and torturous kind of decline. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Francesca Caruso, and we're talking about the Caesar Shuffle. We're walking together from the Colosseum through the Forum, over the Capitoline Hill, to the Pantheon. Francesca, in the Forum we see some very fundamental um, architectural and city planning concepts. I think of Basilica. Most of us travelers think of Basilica as a church. Yes, uh, the Basilica starts out in ancient Rome as a rectangular hall that they use for everything except religion. So they use it for business meetings, for trials, appearances of magistrates and emperors. After 300 years of persecutions, when the Christians are for the first time free to build their own places of worship, they select the basilica as a type, as a model, because it didn't have any psychological, cultural connection with the religion of their persecutors. And that's when it becomes a Christian architectural term. And you sprout a couple of transepts and it actually looks like a cross and voila. It's constant go. evolution, but it's always the same thread. And forum, is that market, marketplace? Uh, outside, so open space. Open yeah. space. Yeah. The spine of this open space was the Via Sacra. And my challenge is to adequately imagine the energy and the, and the jubilation and the spirit of imperial Rome at its zenith. Can you paint a picture of the Via Sacra? 
I think the first thing we have to remember is that ruins are the hardest thing to deal with because you go into this valley of broken stones and columns and you think, okay, what do I do? Okay, so three visual tools. Everything around us has to be imagined on a gigantic scale, the scale not of human beings, but the scale of power. This is Rome. There is no life outside of it. Everything has to be imagined full of color, and everything has to be imagined very close to you. You have to imagine it very oppressive, these buildings, these arches, these basilicas, these temples, and then full of people. You couldn't move in the forum. It was so crowded. Languages and faces from all over the known world, all around you, full of statues, painted, full of bronze. So the richer, the denser, the more grandiose you imagine it, the closer you're going to get. Now, above the Forum, we have the Capitoline Hill. And I just think if this is the capital of the city of Rome for 2,000 years, that's where the, the mayor has been or something like that. Oh, yeah, in, in antiquity, it used to be a little bit like the Acropolis in, in Athens. So the center, where the most important temple in the city was, so the religious center, no? Oh, okay. And then we walk from the Capitol Hill across a couple of blocks further away, and we get to the building that I think gives you a feeling for the magnificence and the splendor of Rome better than any other building, and that's the Pantheon. Ah, yes. A visit to Rome without the Pantheon, which just cannot happen. And uh, the Pantheon is the best-preserved uh, building from antiquity anywhere in the Roman world, anywhere. And it started out as a temple, and then it was turned into a church, and they still have mass there on uh, on weekends, and it used to be possible to get married there until a few years ago. So Pantheon uh, would all have been a gods. temple to all the gods. Mm -hmm. And Rome was pretty cool when it came to religion. I mean, you could have your own religion as long as you uh, followed the emperor as, as a deified character also, right? So this was a temple where you could literally worship all the different gods. Yes, I mean, it's still, uh, scholars are not so certain, but absolutely all the gods. Yes, it's a thing. The Romans adopted the religion uh, the religion of the people that they came into contact with. It's the monotheistic religions that they have problems with. Otherwise, okay. they were very so, inclusive. And, and Christianity, yeah. they'll have no other gods before me. That was a big, uh, big sure. challenge for the early Christians to assert this, and they managed in the year 300 or so. The Emperor Constantine embraces that, and, and then that made things a little easier. But the Pantheon amazing architecture of 140 feet wide, 140 feet tall, built on a circular plan, so Roman, so glorious, and it survived because shortly after it was a temple, it became a Christian church dedicated to the martyrs and therefore not seriously cannibalized like a lot of great buildings. And Francesca, when I step into that glorious space, the Pantheon, it must be the most one of the most beautiful architectural spaces anywhere in the Western world. And I look up, I see a skylight, what does that skylight symbolize to you? <laughs> the Oculus is the skylight that you're talking about. When I stand there under the what used to be the largest concrete dome in the world until modern times, and I see the clouds moving across it against the blue sky, I think it's Rome. <laughs> it's Rome. It's kind of connecting the heavens and the, and, oh, yes. and the temporal. Yeah. It did 1,800 years ago or whenever it was made, and it, it yeah. does to this day. And think of how many people have stood there on that marble before you. <laughs> in the 1900 years that that building has existed. And the, those are the original stones on the floor, and you're standing on them. It's absolutely 80% original floor, so you you stretch across time and you stretch across space. Just like Caesar, you're helping wear a little hole into that piece of beautiful marble. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Francesca Caruso. Thanks so much for giving us a little tour. Grazie a te, Rick. Thank you. Of classical Rome. Ciao. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.